A quick trigger warning for today's episode, we will be talking about abortion, and while we won't be talking about it graphically, uh, except for a couple of moments in the Bible that do mention a little bit of violence against women, if this is a subject matter that isn't going to be comfortable for you, that's totally fine. We'll see you next week. Welcome to Sunday School for Heathens. The show where we learn about Christianity and how weird it sounds to everyone else. I'm Shannon. And I'm Brian. I am not a priest and I do not have a degree in theology. I'm just the kind of guy who once shared a case of Natty Light with a convent full of sisters. It's true. I heard the story and it was a great one. <laughs> we were, they were Franciscans and they were celebrating the Feast of the Stigmata. It was a good time. <laughs> this is the most like only you and also maybe only Wisconsin. Oh yeah, they were they were very big Packers fans. It was awesome. Great. <laughs> uh, well, we have a very exciting and slightly different from our usual episode this week, isn't that right, Brian? We do. So, one of the things I like to do on this podcast is talk about how we've ended up where we are, how we got to what modern Christianity is. So, one of the things that's been coming up a lot in the news is a lot of new bills being proposed about abortion. Lots of heartbeat bills in the news. And they tend to be pushed by a lot of evangelical groups. So I wanted to talk about the connection between abortion and Christianity. But also, as a dude, I don't want to be the one explaining a women's health issue to Shannon. Yeah, both of us felt like that was maybe not the right choice, and I definitely am not the person to have that conversation. And I was lucky enough to happen upon an episode of a podcast with a really awesome expert about these sort of things, and we thought, wouldn't it be cool if we could get her on the show? And she was was so gracious enough to join us. So the Reverend Katie Zay is an ordained Baptist minister and gender justice advocate. She earned her master's from Yale Divinity School, and she currently serves as interim executive director of the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice in Washington, D.C. She is the co-host of the Kindreds podcast and the author of Women Rise Up, Sacred Stories of Resistance for Today's Revolution. Welcome to the show, Reverend Katie Zay. Hey, y'all. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming in. Yeah, we're so excited to have you here. Yeah. Um, So I guess let's dig right in. We do tend to start biblically. We do. So, yeah, the, the first question that we always start with is, what does the Bible say about this topic? So we're wondering, what does the Bible actually say about abortion? Or if nothing, which is sometimes the case, what do people take from the Bible to use as an argument? Good questions kick off. And I thought before I dive in too much, I wanted to share this quote from Rachel Held Evans that I've been revisiting um, in the wake of her death. Um, This is from the, well, yeah, to start off on a note. So I've just been revisiting (laughs) some of her. (laughs) I know, no, me too. But I think that she has something really important to say about 
what we what we're doing when we look for certain things um, in the Bible. So this is from the year Biblical Womanhood, one of my favorite works of hers. And she said, there are times when the most instructive question to bring to the text, and by that she means the Bible, is not what does it say, but what am I looking for? And I think that that's a really helpful framing to keep in mind as we explore this question. To start, the Bible doesn't have a whole lot to say about abortion. Um, there are a couple of texts from the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, as Christians call it, that are worth mentioning. So I'll talk about them really briefly. Uh, the first is from Exodus 21, verses 22 through 25. And this deals with an instance in which a pregnant woman is injured in battle and experiences a miscarriage as a result. So as long as the woman lives, the the perpetrator of the violence is required to pay the woman's husband a fine for this loss. But if she dies as a result of the violence, the penalty is life for life. So we see at least in this instance, a distinction in value um, between the value of fetal life and the value of a fully formed human being. So there's that passage that some people point to. Another is Numbers 5, 11 through 33. And this one, excuse me, 31. And this is actually a really gruesome passage <laughs> in which a woman is accused of adultery. Um, she's forced to consume an abortifacient. Uh, oh. And it's essentially like a purity test to determine her guilt or innocence around adultery. So I wouldn't say either of these is exactly instructive for our contemporary ethic about abortion. But there is an argument to be made that at least in these particular contexts and cultures, fetal life had a distinct category and was treated differently from fully formed human beings. So there's an argument to be made then that the Bible doesn't support the idea of personhood at conception. Uh, And nowhere in the Gospels does Jesus talk about this issue. So we don't really have any texts in the Christian scriptures about it. Yeah. So if the Bible doesn't say that much about abortion. So where do folks get their, um, where do they get their their texts from to support anti-abortion stances? So a lot of times what I see is folks pulling verses from Psalm 139. So that, that says, for it was you who formed my inward parts, you knit me together in my mother's womb. And Jeremiah 1, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And they point to these verses to support their idea that personhood begins at conception. Um, And then there are others who support abortion who point to scriptures like Genesis 2, the creation story in which God breathes into the man and the man became a living being. So the argument can be made that if breath equals life, then life begins at first breath. So So, what are you looking for? You'll find it. Yeah. (laughs) Sounds like it. Yeah. And and that last one I've actually heard, I didn't know about, um, but I heard from a Jewish friend that that's that's the, the Jewish understanding is that life begins at first breath. That's correct. That's my understanding as well. Yeah. That's interesting. It seems like you can you can sort of find whatever you're looking for, be it this idea that like a mother has a relationship with an unborn um child in the womb somehow like connects to personhood and that like mm-hmm. you know someone, which I think is interesting, but also it seems pretty powerful the idea that like breath is the source of life and it's breathed into the first man. Yeah. So I think there's there's a spectrum of opinion and belief about this. And I think that that's really important. And all of us have motivations when we approach the biblical text. And I have mine too. So I do my best to resist this kind of proof texting because like Rachel says, you can find a text to support almost any position if you're willing to pull it out of its context and interpret <laughs> it however you want. Yeah. Um, but that's how I 
try not to read the Bible. Um, I try to think more thematically about what am I reading in various places, what's emerging for me as a core understanding. And so what I've gathered in my time studying passages, especially stories about women in the Bible, which you mentioned, my book, Women Rise Up, there aren't that many texts that discuss abortion, but there's a lot that discuss reproductive oppression in which women were not free to make reproductive decisions based on their own conscience. Mm And so when I study the Gospels and observe how Jesus interacted with women, not all of the time, but most of the time he was seeking their liberation from whatever oppression they were experiencing, whether that was physical or societal or religious or all of the the above at the same time. And so if being a follower of Jesus means resisting oppression, then for me, that means resisting any law that's aimed at perpetuating that oppression. And that begins with how people are able to live and exist and move in their bodies. And for me, it has to start there. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think that's really really interesting and really strong to feel that (laughs) that sense of breaking from oppression being what Jesus really intended. Because if you read your book, there are a lot of stories, especially in the Hebrew Bible, um, that were really sort of intense to me as a non-studier of the Bible, where that choice is taken from a woman. Mm -hmm. Um, And then seeing how later in the New Testament you see more from Jesus of like giving people the right to make their own choices in life. Yeah. Oh my gosh. As someone who has read a lot of those stories before, they still were so powerful. Uh, um, just in the detail. Uh, and because when you, a lot of the time when you read those stories, you gloss over the oppression of the women just because it's, these are the stories that are presented to you in a very academic kind of manner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And they don't get a whole lot of airtime in sermons or if they do, they're, those aspects are are really quickly glossed over because they're very uncomfortable. I mean, how do we wrestle with the presence of really violent texts, not just against women, but all kinds of people mm-hmm. throughout scripture? It's a it's a troubling thing and I think glossing over it is not is taking a position and maybe not one that we should. Maybe we should sit more with these uncomfortable stories and figure out what do they have to tell us now. Yeah, because sure. I think they do have a lot to tell us now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We're basically doing the same thing mm-hmm. to people that we were thousands of years ago. History is doomed to repeat itself, I guess. <laughs> unfortunately. That's right. So you, we had talked a, a little bit before about how different people are, are able to pull different conclusions from different passages within the Bible. And so I grew up Catholic and I've, I've kind of understood that Historically, abortion was seen as a Catholic issue and not a, a Protestant or an evangelical issue. Can you talk a little bit about what views on abortion looked like pre-Roe versus Wade? Like the differences between like what, what Catholics and what Protestants thought? Well, first of all, Protestants haven't been around as long, <laughs> so we don't have <laughs> we don't have as much of a history. And and frankly, you know, I'm not Catholic, so I'm definitely not an expert on this. Um, so, but my understanding from what I've read is that Catholic teachings have evolved over time, uh, and that the Catholic Church has not always outright opposed been opposed to any and all abortion. So, um, historically, there was an understanding of ensoulment that would happen during quickening, what they called quickening during a pregnancy. So that's before ultrasounds and all of those things. A woman 
detects movement. Um, and then that was considered, you know, during her pregnancy, she feels fetal movement. And that was considered the moment of ensoulment. Oh, and uh, my understanding is that's that was a dividing line for Catholics around the status of fetal life. And now that has obviously changed. Yeah. The position is uh, one that's, you know, opposed to abortion and contraception. Um, yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, we also know that Catholic people use contraception and obtain abortions at pretty much the same rate as everybody else. So the teaching doesn't necessarily reflect the reality of Catholic people's lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you're interested in more of this, I would really urge you to check out Catholics for Choice because they are much more knowledgeable about this than I am. But they're a great resource if you are interested in Catholic teaching and how Catholic people can be pro-choice. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to. I'm definitely going to look into that because... Um, the hardest conversations I have on this issue are with my friends who are, um, have you heard of, uh, the seamless garment approach to being pro-life? Yes. That's kind of the consistent ethic from, from, um, conception all the way through death. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And so those people, they're, they're the kind of people who are putting in the work. They were, they help out at, um, adoption agencies. They're opposed to the death penalty. And those are the ones that it's, it's a little harder to convince them, um, that there's some unintended consequences to the, the things that they're supporting. Yeah. I also can have respect for people who hold that particular theological viewpoint. I think where it becomes problematic for me is when, that particular point of view is legislated for everybody mm-hmm. sure. when we live in a pluralistic society in which not all people are Catholic. Yeah, absolutely. And so we've talked a little bit about what Catholic viewpoints were, but what about non-Catholic religious viewpoints? Um, sure. Pre-Roe versus Wade. Right. There's a really rich history that we, most of us have forgotten about, which is in the years prior to Roe versus Wade, there were lots of Protestant and Jewish clergy and laity who were advocating for the legalization of abortion. Again, I should say abortion was legal in the U.S. prior to Roe versus Wade. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's this amazing history of the Clergy Consultation Service on Abortion, which I don't know if y'all have talked about or read about, but it was an underground network of faith leaders mm-hmm. in states around the country who worked with pregnant women in need of safe, affordable abortion when it was illegal. And estimates are they helped over almost half a million women get abortions during that time. And what they would do is they would vet abortion providers to make sure they were reputable and compassionate and that they weren't going to take advantage of people who needed their care. And honestly, you know, we talk about them now as, as heroic, and I would say they are, but they weren't crusaders in the same way that I would say folks who are doing this work now are because there was a lot of support from Protestant religious and Jewish religious institutions for access to abortion. So if you look at denominational statements from the 1970s, nearly all of them affirm access to abortion, even the Southern Baptist Church, which you know we think of now as really fundamentalist. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this great quote from the president of the Southern Baptist Church at the time, W.A. Criswell. He said, I've always felt that it was only after a child was born and had a life separate from its mother that it became an individual person. And it has always, therefore, seemed to me that what is best for the mother and for the future should be allowed. So even among the Southern Baptist Church at the time, we see support for the legalization of abortion. Um, So not everywhere, but that was kind of the predominant viewpoint of Protestant and Jewish folks at the time. Wow. So what changed? I guess that's like a big question. Yeah. (laughs) Why are we here? How did, I guess for me, I'm just always 
very confused by the idea that, like, we clearly have a history of this being socially and religiously acceptable. And now it feels so the opposite. Yeah. And, like, mm-hmm. as a non-religious person, like, it feels so delicate talking about abortion with religious friends because you mm-hmm. never know where they stand on the issue. And it could be that they are someone who f- comes off very, like, liberal in every other way. And they have this, like, deep-seated religious concern about abortion. Mm-hmm. And I just am fascinated by, like, how we ended up in this tricky territory now. Yeah. I'm going to offer a particular viewpoint, sure, which please. other people can can disagree with. But the first part is, how do we talk about the rise of the religious right mm-hmm. as a political entity starting in the 1970s, early 1970s? Uh, so we have to examine, like, how did we get to this understanding that you know people of faith are conflated with being anti-abortion? So when I was at Yale Divinity School, I took a course on American Christianity with a professor named Randall Balmer. And he's a historian who has studied evangelicalism for a long time. And his analysis is that the rise of the religious right was really not about abortion, even though folks like Jerry Falwell would claim that, but it was actually about desegregation. So Roe versus Wade happened within a time of broadening civil rights for lots of different folks. And you all might have heard of Bob Jones University, which mm-hmm. was started by Jerry Falwell. Yeah. yeah. Um, So during this time, it came under great scrutiny by the IRS because they refused to comply with desegregation laws. And they actually lost their tax-exempt status as an institution. So according to Balmer, that was actually the catalyzing issue for the rise of the religious right, not abortion, um, because it wasn't until 1969, six years after Roe, that Christian conservatives really took on abortion publicly as part of their platform in an effort to defeat Jimmy Carter in his re-election campaign, which they were successful in doing so. So there's a gap between when that group of conservative Christians got together to talk about a political agenda and when they actually took a stance on abortion. So very much tied to white supremacy and um, patriarchy. So, you know, talking about patriarchy for a second, like, I don't know if you all have talked about patriarchy and how evangelicals and Roman Catholics come together to support patriarchy as an agenda, but <laughs> Our but they really first do. Episode was on original sin, so we touched on it a little. Okay, bit. <laughs> you know, we got a little bit about how uh, the, mostly what we said was Eve was cursed with the patriarchy in the fall. <laughs> oh. I mean, God bless Augustine and his own like sexual issues that got us <laughs> to where we are. Too. I mean, <laughs> oh my God, <laughs> we have gotten on Augustine a little bit. <laughs> oh, I know. Just, I just wish he had just kept a journal instead of having his works published more publicly. But in any case, uh, so back of uh, back to pa- patriarchy. So one way to perpetuate patriarchy and uphold men in power is to control the reproductive lives of anybody who doesn't identify as male. Yeah. So yeah, that includes opposing abortion, but it's about way more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about encouraging people to stay with abusive partners and calling that biblical. It's about opposing contraception, mm-hmm. which is one of the most critical interventions in preventing unintended pregnancies, um, yeah. insisting that it's God's will for every marriage to result in children, yeah. which is problematic for lots of reasons, including like people who can't get pregnant. Um, and it's also about opposing women in the pulpit and, and women preaching. So to me, the opposition to abortion within the conservative Christian movement is connected to a much larger oppressive framework aimed at keeping 
white straight men in power. So that might sound really sinister, <laughs> but <laughs> but all, it is one of those things where I feel both surprised and not surprised. Yeah. Where like, I guess I never thought, I guess I could never have made the jump on my own that like religious objection to abortion really has to do with white supremacy and political power. But when you say it out loud, I'm like, yeah, given where we are now, I, this feels 100% like this is where this came from. Yeah. And we also on a future episode have, uh, we're going to talk about complementarianism. So we'll get more I, into the yeah. patriarchy with that. And that's even more of that, that issue just sh- popping up again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. And I think one of the strategic mistakes that we make is when we allow abortion to be extrapolated and used as a wedge issue because it actually exists within a much broader context. Mm-hmm. And I'm really thankful to the black women who formed the reproductive justice movement mm-hmm. um, and spoke to that truth that really opposition to abortion has never been about abortion. It's been about upholding white supremacy, Christian nationalism, patriarchy. Mm-hmm. And so we as advocates have to tackle a much broader agenda of issues that includes ensuring people who want to parent are able to parent in safe and healthy environment. So, and I say all this as someone who grew up in a very much evangelical Christian environment and subscribed to their beliefs and teachings for a long time. So I say all this not to offend any particular person who identifies as evangelical now, but I do say it as someone who's observed how the theology operates in real time and saw some of its effects on real people in my life, including myself. For sure. Now, I guess my question is, we know how the evangelical right and evangelical Christians uh, created this front to push abortion as an issue to keep them in power. But in your opinion and in your study, how do you think that mainline Protestants sort of started to like feed into that same uh, wave of anti-abortion? Um, do you think it was just because they there were similar interests being represented? Or when do you think that things like the Southern Baptist Church went from having this really lax view to starting to transition with the religious right? Yeah, I mean, there are lots of there are a lot of factors. I mean, on on the one hand, I think that some of the folks who are advocating for the legalization of abortion post Roe versus Wade maybe didn't do the best job in terms of, maintaining that strong advocacy voice and kind of allowing and capitulating their viewpoints Mm -hmm. to Christian conservatives Um, and and maybe not evolving their messages with the time. Like I talked about the importance of the reproductive justice framework, and I, I hear more people of faith trying to learn from that framework that what we're really talking about is resisting oppression in all forms. And we're not just talking about when someone might need an abortion, but how do we support people who want to parent and things. And so I think there's been like a real kind of capitulation and, and a, um, a culmination of political power that frankly upholds the dominant narrative. I mean, it's easier to uphold the dominant narrative than it is to try to deconstruct it. So to try to deconstruct patriarchy that's had thousands of years to build power, mm-hmm. that's a much st- steeper uphill climb than it is to just maintain the status quo. So I think the challenge for us now is how to reclaim the moral high ground um, that I think we've always had and to really challenge with faith language some of the um, theological underpinnings of the religious right and call them out as, I think, antithetical to Christian values that I hold. So, But I think we also have to educate people who are covering this to to show that there are a variety of viewpoints. I think what we see is like a very conservative religious voice and then a very um, progressive secular voice that's 
mainly talking about legal rights. Mm -hmm. So those two things don't really talk to each other. So how do we talk about this issue in a moral framework together along the spectrum of opinion? And I think what we see from polling is that most Americans have some ambivalence about this issue and they don't identify as completely anti-abortion and they don't identify as abortion in any and all circumstances. Most people fall along a spectrum. But we don't talk politically like that. We talk about one or the other. Mm -hmm. And I think it just doesn't represent how most people feel about the issue. And I think that's in part because we failed to have those nuanced conversations in faith spaces and beyond about what people actually feel and believe about this issue. Yeah, this this issue always in particular feels very much one side or the other. It is hard. It's definitely hard to have the any kind of gray area. Mm hmm. And, and the reality is that most people, most Americans do exist in the gray area on this issue. Mm-hmm. So how do we talk about that? I mean, yeah. I think for me, I'm okay with having conversations where I say, I believe that fetal life has value. I believe that an abortion at eight weeks and an abortion at 20 weeks or 30 weeks are different things. Mm-hmm. And I think being willing to have those kinds of conversations um, might lead us to a place of thinking about, so what is it that we're actually trying to create versus what are we opposed to? You know, I, I always think about what is it that the anti-abortion movement, what are they really trying? What do they, what do they want the world to look like? And what do I want the world to look like? And are those the same things or are they different things? Yeah. Um, I have a feeling they're different things, mm-hmm. but I also believe there are folks who are opposed to abortion, um, maybe like the seamless garment folks, where we probably could agree on a number of policy things. Oh yeah, um, that would that would get us to a better place. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I'm I'm open and willing to work with those folks, but it is really hard to stay out of our talking points that we yell at one another. Yeah, yeah. and I feel like it's it feels like an immovable object for some people. Where really it does. It's so. I think if you dig deeper into any single person's beliefs on abortion. It's not as easy, like you said, as pro-choice or pro-life. It's where where is your where's your line? What's the spectrum? You know, like you talk about biblically this idea of, or maybe not biblically but historically, the idea of like the quickening. Like there was a line at some point of like when you detect fetal movement, that's where they sort of draw the line. And I think everyone right. has a line along that spectrum, and we're doing a really bad job about communicating with each other about what our own personal lines are on that spectrum. And instead yeah. just standing on opposite ends of, of this issue. And the, the, the truth is that we all love people who have had abortions. We might not know it, but we do. It's such a common experience mm-hmm. that so many people feel like because of the, stame, the shame and stigma around it, they can't talk about. But the reality is that every single abortion happens within the context of a real person's life with all kinds of different circumstances that lead them to that decision. And I think we've got to do our best to humanize this issue and remember that this is not abstract. This is happening very much within our community, again, with people that we love. And so how do we approach the issue from that place of compassion versus judgment? Like, I would never do that. Um, I would never do that, but you can do that. I mean, that's not a helpful thing to say. It's not a supportive stance. So I think we've got to move into compassion. And I think the more that we can 
learn from abortion stories that are out there. If you don't know somebody, reading abortion stories might help you get to a place of more compassion. Just really understand like what what are the circumstances that might cause somebody to be in a position of making that decision. Because um, I know for me, story is what helps me feel mm-hmm. like more connected to people who have different experiences than I do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's so much easier to connect to people than it is to an abstract rule. <laughs> Right. Right. Absolutely. And that's why I really resist debating people on this because, you know, for me, I don't really feel like I have that after this point in a pregnancy, like abortion's no longer morally acceptable. Like I don't want to get into the minutia of that because I feel like no matter what my answer is, I get boxed in. Mm -hmm. But I feel very convicted that my role as a minister is to follow the example of Jesus who offered compassion and a listening ear to people and offered them healing in all kinds of ways. And so for me, I don't feel like my job is to parse out, you know, where is that line? And when does life begin? I mean, to me, those are questions like, what is the nature of God? Like, I don't know. (laughs) You know, these are mysteries of life and death that I frankly don't think we'll ever have answers to. And so I would rather spend my energy on caring for the real human beings in front of me who are going through really difficult times. And I feel like that's being faithful to my calling. Some people might say it's a cop out, but it's how I choose to spend my limited energy. (laughs) That just, I I have to tell this story real quick. I, um, I got dinner with a friend of mine the other night and on the way out of the parking lot to the restaurant, she said someone stopped her and said, real quick, can you tell me what heaven is like? (laughs) What? That's wild. Was this like an evangelist, an apologist? No, this was just a friend. This was someone that she knew that was just genuinely curious about what her thoughts were on heaven in the time it took to walk across the parking lot. That's a, you know, just parting conversation you have at the end of the night. Yeah, that is, uh, I think, a bigger question than a walk across a parking lot can possibly cover. That just reminded me of that. Yeah. Um, So I do feel like... I know uh, you just said that you don't like to get into the the debate uh, talking points, but because we talked about this being so tied up with race, I know a lot of people come back from the other side talking about how the early conversations around contraception involved a lot of racist statements. And so they, so people say, well, really the race, the racist side are the people that are trying to stop minorities from being born. So I was wondering what what do you say to people who who say to, who say that? Sure. So for one, I I look to my my black women reproductive justice advocates for this conversation. Yeah. But there's um there's a great book that I read a few years ago. It's not a, it's not a faith based book, but it's called Killing the Black Body by Dorothy Roberts, and she traces the history of the ways in which black women's bodies have been controlled by the state and by white supremacy since slavery. Um, And, you know, if we want to be really honest about how our government has been complicit in reproductive oppression, we have to talk about forced sterilization, um, the drug tests that are done on black women when they're pregnant and then they're they're tried with child abuse or are forced to get long-term contraceptives against their will because... Um, that's part of their sentencing. So I think when we hear white people talking about how um, reproductive health rights and justice is about eliminating black folks, like there's a lack of honesty about 
the hit the the real history around reproductive oppression against black women specifically in this country. And so I always turn it to like, what are what are black women historians saying about this? Sure, that makes um, sense. <laughs> for sure. Because that's just like internalizing white supremacy and using it to um, further marginalize black communities yeah. when we're when we're untruthful about our history. Um, and that's why, again, the reproductive justice movement to me is so important because they talk about it's not just about access to abortion. It's about ensuring that black women have the ability to have the kids that they want. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, black women's fertility has been controlled by the state. Yeah. Both, both the ability to have children and to not have children. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I mean, it's not just black women, but, yeah. you know, the history of slavery in particular is obviously important for us to deconstruct and analyze as um, as we live in a white supremacist culture. Yeah. Yeah. Th- thank you. That that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well put. <laughs> I remember once being at a, um, it was a protest, an anti-abortion protest, and we were there to kind of be the opposition to the protest, which is always fun. And um, <laughs> there was a, a black woman on our team. And I remember one of the women there protesting turned to her and just like tried to make the black genocide argument. And, and my colleague just didn't say anything. And I was like, I said to the woman, this is in my younger years, I was like, look around this protest. This is the whitest protest I've ever seen. There are no black people here for your side. So, like, don't talk to me about black genocide. Yeah. I'm not saying that there aren't black folks who are opposed to abortion, because there are. But in that particular instance, I was like, don't even with that. I love that. White lady. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, young Katie, for, for doing that, for calling out some white people on their white peopleness. <laughs> Ay, ay, ay. That's, 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 we need more of that in the world. <laughs> uh, so I also wanted to talk a little bit about what you're doing now. Uh, can you tell us about the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice? Um, yeah. What they're doing, how people can get involved if they'd like to? Absolutely. So RCRC, as we're known, um, is the legacy organization of the Clergy Consultation Service on Abortion, which I was talking about earlier. So we've been around since the 70s, and we're an interfaith movement that brings the moral force of religion to protect and advance reproductive health rights and justice. So like I've said before, we're seeking to end all forms of oppression, including reproductive oppression, and to ensure that we're upholding reproductive dignity. We do this through a lot of different things. We do education, prophetic witness, pastoral presence, and advocacy. And I'll get into a little bit of the specifics of that. So one of our programs is um, compassionate care training. So how do we train people who might come into contact with someone going through a reproductive loss or making a tough decision about a reproductive issue? Um, So what do you do to be that compassionate presence? What can you offer as you're working alongside that person as they're figuring out what they're going to do? So that's a really great program that we offer. It used to be just for clergy. And now we've realized that it needs to be available to doctors and clinic staff and social workers. So we've expanded that program. Um, We also work on the ground with local partners to create interfaith rituals of blessing for health clinics that provide abortion. So um, we just did one last week in Austin, Texas, and it was, it was truly incredible um, just to be there with the staff and to offer them support because their work is so hard. And obviously they go through a lot of um, it's tough to be working in an abortion clinic. Um, So that was a really great kind of bold thing that we got to do. And of course we, we go to the press and share about it and it puts a different kind of narrative into the atmosphere about how, 
people of faith feel about abortion or what they think about abortion. And of course, a lots of backlash comes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's one of the more like the prophetic witness kinds of things that we do. And we also have a number of affiliates around the country uh, who work with their cities and states to organize and educate folks on the ground about faith-based support for reproductive dignity. So we're really about like building building up capacity on the ground and working across not just faiths, but also with folks who don't identify as faith-based, but value the role of religion in this particular issue. Mm-hmm. So um, that's that's the work that we do. And um, I've been involved with them since I was in seminary. So it's been a while. I was their board chair um, and then came on as interim executive director just a few months ago. So it's like the organization that will not let me go. And I'm <laughs> thankful for that. <laughs> Sounds like a great organization to be stuck with. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what can people do? I mean, I'll, I'll get into the obvious in a second. But I think one of the really important things is no matter what your views are on this issue, I would really encourage you to spend some time examining them. And where did the messages come from that have informed them? And spend some time thinking about it and then practice talking about it with someone you trust. Because one of the things that we've talked about is we don't talk about this issue. And it's okay to be ambivalent or to have questions that you can't answer because I'm obviously in the same boat. But I think practicing talking about this will help us shift the culture into a place that's more compassionate and less less polarized. Uh, and if you're a person of faith, you know, figure out a way to talk about your faith in, in this context too, because I think that that I think that that's a really important piece. So in addition to that personal work, we would love for you to follow RCRC on Twitter and Facebook. You can donate on our website, rcrc.org. And if you're interested in doing some work in your state and you don't have an affiliate, you can send us an email through our contact page and one of our staff will get back to you. Awesome. Yeah, and we will definitely post links on the show notes for this episode for uh, the Twitter and the website and the Facebook um, awesome. Sure. Yeah, yeah, that's been one of the one of the hardest things for me is trying to find where my faith falls within this issue. Because in college, I was in Students for Life, and I went mm-hmm. to all the events. I was very involved with them, um, and then I got involved in politics, and it was very far left, and it was very far to the other side, but not talking about faith with it. And so now I'm trying to find where that middle ground is. That's It's really tough, and you're not alone. I've talked to a lot of people who, um, particularly Catholic people, but not exclusively so, where they say, politically, I am, I am pro-choice, but religiously, I struggle with that. And I think that that's not a bad thing. I think it's good to like sit in that and go, okay, where is this coming from? And how, if, how, when can I reconcile these things together? And, um, you know, for me, I think on any serious moral issue, we're constantly learning and evolving. And I think asking the questions and not being afraid to ask them is a really good starting point. Uh, Yeah, definitely. For sure. I mean, I think I have, you know, the totally opposite perspective (laughs) from Brian, um, given that I, I grew up in a very liberal household. Like, I've always you know, been someone who has been sort of like passively pro reproductive freedom, but have very, have have until recently felt called to speak up particularly about it. And now I think in this climate, 
being able to have a platform as like whatever size this platform is to be able to talk about this and encourage people to have conversations and do some thinking and know that there are both um, religious and non-religious resources available. Uh, yeah. I think feels really, I'm really glad that I can help spread that for people. And then, well, I'm, I'm grateful for you all being willing to bring this issue to the forefront of your podcast because there's obviously a lot of issues you could be talking about. And I'm, I'm glad that you decided this was important enough that you wanted to center it for this episode. So I'm, I'm glad this is an example of the kinds of conversations I think people should be having. Yeah. And we're so grateful for you coming on and educating us. Yeah. I when I sent an email to your organization having heard you on West Wing Weekly, I was like, this is such a long shot, but I'm just going <laughs> for it. So to have you respond and to tweet about the show, which was really put a smile on our faces and Aww. come on the show uh, has been really, really wonderful for us. Is there anything else you'd like to add? What I would say is I personally felt my call to ministry in an abortion clinic as I was accompanying people through their abortion procedures. And for me, there's been no more profound experience than getting to learn the stories of the people who were making the decision that was best for them. And I think the power of narrative really showed up in that space for me. And as I walked through the line of protesters to go inside the clinic and saw all of the visibly religious people outside being frankly just hateful yeah. toward the people walking into the clinic and saw the real what I would consider the real compassion or the real ministry happening within the walls of the clinic. You know, for me, that was when I said, okay, as a person of faith who has the privilege of one day putting on a collar, I have to be, I have to be different. I have to show the folks in the clinic, people of faith can actually really support and bless the work that you're doing. And so that's my kind of like personal evangelical testimony to, <laughs> to my, to my call. And, and even as people challenge me, you know, and it's, it's hard in these days, I've gotten targeted um, by some anti-abortion sites recently, which happens from time to time. And I just think back to, you know what, the people that I supported like that, I will never regret that. I will never regret standing with folks who have been so marginalized and just seeking an option that they needed for all kinds of reasons. And so, you know, I would encourage folks, if you feel scared about taking a stance on this, I get it. And just think about why you're doing it. Um, and don't let folks intimidate or bully you from taking a stand on an issue you really care about. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Awesome. Well, uh, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back for some fun. Yeah. Sounds good. Uh, mood shift. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And we're back. And now it is time for the Patronage Pop Quiz, where I tell Shannon and also Katie today about a saint, and they have to guess what that saint is the patron of. I'm always nervous excited about this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is really bringing out the Protestant in me, but let's go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This week, the saint is St. Germaine Cossin. Uh, she was born in 1579 in Prebac, France. Her father was named Laurent, and her mother was Marie. They were a poor farming family, and Marie died shortly after Germaine was born. She was a sickly child, and she suffered from scrofula, and she had a deformed right hand. Perhaps because of this, or maybe because he blamed her for her mother's death, Laurent pretty much ignored Germaine. This was better than her stepfamily treated her, though. 
They were pretty abusive to her, forcing her to sleep in the stable or in a cupboard under the stairs. She was and only Harry allowed Potter? To... Yeah, <laughs> she was Harry Potter. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. Uh, my exact thought when I read that. <laughs> Good, glad we're all on the same page. <laughs> she was only allowed to eat scraps, and she was often beaten or scalded with hot water as punishment for things she may or may not have actually done. When she was nine, things got better for her because she was put to work as a shepherd, so she was out of the house more. While out in the fields with her flock, she would spend a lot of her time praying, sometimes with a rosary that she had made herself out of knotted string. She made a point never to miss Mass. When she heard the church bell ringing, she would put her shepherd hook in the ground and declare that her flock was under the care of her guardian angel, and she would head off to church. The sheep always remained unharmed while she was away. Once, to get to church on time, she crossed the raging waters of the Colbert River by walking on top of them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sure. <laughs> like you do. That's how this goes sometimes. Okay. As her fame grew, people began to come to the fields to be taught about Christianity by her, especially children. She also gave whatever food she could to the poor among them, even though she didn't have much to spare. Some of the locals thought her de- religious devotion was foolish, and they called her the Little Bigot. Okay, yeah. weird. I didn't get that I don't one. get that. Okay. <laughs> um, Maybe a weird French translation thing we don't get. Yeah, and when I looked at... So, let's tangent a little. When I looked at the definition of bigot, it was someone whose views don't align with your own. So, I guess technically, if they weren't religious. I don't know, but it was France. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. That feels weird to me still. Uh, But anyway, once in winter, her stepmother accused her of stealing bread by hiding it in her apron and threatened to beat her with a stick. Germaine opened her apron, and instead of bread, summer flowers tumbled out. Her parents and neighbors declared it a miracle, and they began to treat her as a holy person. She was invited to rejoin the household, but she decided that she didn't really want to go back there, so she, she chose to live as she had been, tending her sheep, and she stayed in her little cupboard under the stairs. In 1601, she was found dead on her straw pallet that was in that cupboard, and she was buried in the church of Pibrac opposite the pulpit. She was accidentally exhumed in 1644 during a renovation, and her body was found incorrupt. In... There's a lot of that with the saints. <laughs> they dig them up and they have it rotted. It becomes a bit... <laughs> That's what I've learned. <laughs> That's not it's wrong. a bit they do. <laughs> it's a bit. There's a lot of tropes with saints. <laughs> yeah. In 1793, the casket was desecrated by an anti-Catholic tinsmith named Tulza, who, with three accomplices, took out the remains and buried them in the sacristy and threw quicklime and water on them. Oh no. After the French Revolution, her body was found to be still in- mostly intact except for a few spots where the quicklime had been poured. There are over 400 miracles attributed to Germain, including curing blindness, curing hip injuries, and also curing spinal disease. And she also one time multiplied food for a distressed community uh, called the Community of the Good Shepherd at Borges, France in 1845. So, Shannon and Katie, what... Is Germaine the patron of? Any guesses, Katie? 
So we've got childhood trauma, walking on water, sheep, (laughs) flowers. Okay, my first guess is she's the patron saint of stepchildren. (laughs) Ooh, that's a good one. That's a very good guess, and you're pretty close. Is it just like estranged families or something weird? No. My guess, I had two. Is she the patron saint of left-handed people? Oh, that's such a good a good one. Oh, right, I forgot about the withered hand. <laughs> yeah, I, that I, was I, an I, early detail that was not shocking to me in comparison to all the other horrible things that she endured. It's true. Yeah, she had a rough life. Yeah, um, that one's not it either. The, Is it shepherds though? No, there are a lot of shepherds. Or no, I'm sorry, shepherds, shepherdesses. Yes, that one is in there. (laughs) If she wasn't the patron saint of shepherds, I would have been actually concerned. (laughs) Yeah, the... So, Katie, the one that you were close to was loss of parents. Ah. She is the patron of loss of parents. Okay. But read us the full list, Brian. Yeah, the full list is she is the patron of abandoned people, abuse victims, against bodily ills, against illness, against impoverishment, against poverty, against sickness... Four child abuse victims for disabled people, girls from rural areas, handicapped people, loss of parents, peasant girls, physically challenged people, poor people, shepherdesses, sick people, unattractive people. Weird. <laughs> uh, this victim- is a, quite a list. <laughs> they all are. They're always a oh, lot. Oh, okay. So there's like not just one thing. So you can just make multiple guesses. Okay. Got oh, it. yeah. <laughs> That's a- is the interesting thing about all these saints is that they all have like you either have like no patronages or you have 1800 of them (laughs) and she's got a few more she's got victims of abuse victims of child abuse and young country girls which was weirdly specific and I thought was funny (laughs) I like like that both girls from rural areas and young country girls both get their own patrons (laughs) you know they're not there's a, a little bit of Outside of the middle of that Venn diagram, I guess. Sure. It's like the Dewey Decimal System, like point zero zero three eight. you know, like getting really specific into the genre. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but then, like, there's, when you try to look for the patron of something, it's, you can never find it. Yeah. <laughs> you have to start with the saint first. Fascinating. <gasps> mm-hmm. So that, that's the Patronage Pop Quiz, and thank you all so much for listening today. If you enjoyed the show, check us out on Twitter or Facebook at school number four heathens. You can email us at sundayschoolforheathens at gmail.com. Uh, you can reach the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice uh, on Twitter and via email. We'll post links to all of their social links in the show notes. And be sure to check out Reverend Katie Zay. Uh, she's got her own podcast, Kindreds, and has written the really lovely book, Women Rise Up. I would highly recommend it. I got to borrow Brian's copy and tore through it really fast and had a really lovely conversation with a waitress at a restaurant while I was reading it alone on the patio. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I Kristen, if you're it. listening to the show, thanks for that. Uh, Katie, do you have anything else that you would like to plug while we're doing this? Well, you can find me on my website, katiezay.com. You can find more about my book, and there's also a book discussion guide that's free for download. Uh, And thanks for having me on the show. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you for for coming on. And amen. Amen. (laughs) Go in peace to like and share the pod.